A few hundred years after Jesus walked the earth, there was this Christian called Eusebius. Everyone say Eusebius. Eusebius. Right, so he was uh, effectively the, the first historian of the church. He looked at the couple of hundred years of the history of Christians and thought, you know, it's amazing, you know, it's uh, interesting, it's fascinating, it's inspiring. And he decided to write down what had happened to the Christian church for those couple of hundred years. So he's the the first Christian historian. And um, I've got his book, and I want to read it to you. Um, I'm afraid it's not in the original Latin, um, which some of you will be wildly disappointed at. Um, But he says this. So brightly shone the light of true religion on the minds of Peter's hearers that not satisfied with a single hearing or with the oral teaching of the divine message, they resorted to appeals of every kind to induce Mark, whose gospel we have, as he was a follower of Peter, to leave them in writing a summary of the instruction they'd received by word of mouth. Nor did they let him go till they had persuaded him, and thus became responsible for the writing of what is known as the Gospel according to Mark. So Peter spoke well, his hearers were thrilled with what he said, and the people listening were like, we need this written down, we need it on uh, pen, on paper, we need it preserved so that we can look at it uh, in our own time. And uh, so Mark uh, decided to write down uh, something of Peter said. It is said that on learning by revelation of the Spirit what happened, the apostle was delighted at enthusiasm and authorised the reading of the book in the churches. Clement quotes the story in his book and his statement is confirmed by another bishop whose name I'm not going to pronounce who also points out that Mark is mentioned by Peter in his first epistle, which is said to have been composed in Rome itself, as he himself indicates when he speaks of the city figuratively as Babylon. So, we have this connection of Peter with the book of Mark. And uh, I've sort of mentioned it uh, before. So it seems that the book of Mark in many ways, are the words of Peter retelling something of the story of Jesus. Now, I want to read you the beginning of Mark. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1. So Mark is generally regarded as the first of the gospel sort of written down. And it says this, Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And you're like, okay, so what is Peter the fisherman who saw so many amazing things? What is he going to begin with? And it says this, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you uh, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We'll leave it there. So I want you to remember all you know about Peter, his impetuosity, uh, his his faith, his doubt, 
all his dynamism uh, and uh, just that incredibly uh, full of beans type of guy that he was. And this is how he starts the gospel of Jesus. He doesn't go immediately into miracles and exorcisms and healings and wise teachings. What does he do? He quotes something from the Old Testament. Specifically, he remembers this Hebrew prophet called Isaiah. Everyone say Isaiah. Isaiah. He repeats the prophet Isaiah because Isaiah's words didn't weren't just for Isaiah's time but they pointed forward in prophecy to Peter's time to the arrival of Jesus and specifically here we are told that there would be a forerunner to Jesus there would be someone that would announce that Jesus was coming Why does Peter spend time on this ancient prophecy about John the Baptist when he could get straight in to healings and miracles? If you want to write a bestseller about Jesus, you're kind of thinking you would step right in when you had sort of lepers and walking on water and when you had all sorts of action scenes. But Peter very deliberately goes back to the Old Testament and gets Mark to quote Isaiah. I don't know what your relationship with the Old Testament is, but it can be quite difficult. It can be quite impenetrable. I was reading a bit of Ezekiel a few weeks ago and I found it boring and skipped over it. But Peter makes sure that Mark puts it right at the beginning. Now turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, we've read verses 1 to 9 already, so we're going to go in at verse 10. It says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace... Everyone say grace. Who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Everyone say me. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by, everyone say me by those who have preached the gospel to, everyone say me, Me. to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. In verses 1 to 9, Peter has extolled the virtues of salvation. And, and hopefully you, along with me, have found yourselves getting excited about the truth of Jesus and how it impacts and changes everything. Peter now wants you to know that this excitement and inexpressible joy is unprecedented, is unrivaled, is never happened before. To begin with, we are told that the Old Testament speaks of grace. 
Now, I don't know what your impression of the Old Testament is, but sometimes you can sort of dip in, like randomly, and look in, and for instance, you come across the dimensions of the temple in Ezekiel, and you're like, what is going on here? And some of you may worry about the Old Testament and go, I really don't understand it. And in fact, there are some bits that I find really difficult and find unpalatable. Well, Peter says that the Old Testament speaks of grace. Everyone say grace. Grace. This undeserved love is a summary of the Old Testament. Sometimes when we get verse by verse into the nitty gritty, we may miss that point. Sometimes uh, we cannot see the wood for the trees. But Peter says the Old Testament is all about grace. And if you struggle with the Old Testament, I want you to hear Peter. He says it's all about grace. You may not always see the grace of God there, but it is there nevertheless. And that is a summary of it. And so you can be reassured when you read it that that is the underlying message that God wants you to hear. Grace It's the shorthand of the good news of Jesus. It is the shorthand for Old Testament and New Testament. And it's the shorthand of what the uh, core message of Christians is. Grace. If you wonder what Christianity is all about, Peter would say it's grace. It is this undeserved love of God. It is that love of God that says, I love you. You may not love yourself, but I love you. And it's a beautiful thing. There is this generous affection and devotion at the core of everything. And you need to drink it in and enjoy it and receive it. Now sometimes I understand that you can read bits in the book of Judges when they're sort of battling other nations. And you can see God's judgment on the people of Israel and saying, you know what, that sounds a bit severe. I'm not really sure I'm in for that. I might just go back to some of the Sermon on the Mount because I like that bit about forgiveness or, or, or something else. But Peter wants you to look again at the Old Testament. And he says, it is all filled with pointers to Jesus. Just because you don't see them doesn't mean that they are not there. And he deliberately says that the Old Testament prophets spoke, and he uses his phrase very carefully, the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, is the one that inspired the prophets. Jesus fills the Old Testament. And that is why I absolutely love the, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible that we try and read at uh, uh, Messy Church, because it is all about Jesus filling the Old Testament and the New. And how does he fill the Old Testament? Well, he does it in all sorts of ways. Um, Jesus fulfills all sorts of predictions. There's all sorts of things in the Old Testament that Jesus is the answer to. When they're talking about someone born of a virgin, Jesus is the answer. When someone is talking about the Saviour will come from Bethlehem, Jesus is the answer. When it talks about a suffering servant, Jesus is the answer. And secondly, there are all sorts of heroes in the Old Testament that are kind of uh, poor 
imitations of the Saviour to come. There's Adam, and he's quite good, but he fails again and again. Jesus, Paul tells us again, is the new Adam. He does everything perfectly. Jesus is the new Abraham who doesn't lie about his wife. Jesus is the new Moses who doesn't doubt Jesus is the new David that doesn't have an affair with Bathsheba. Jesus is the new Jonah that doesn't run away. Jesus is all the best bits of the heroes in the Old Testament. And he is the antidote to all their failures. Whenever you find a hero in the Old Testament, it is a good question to ask is, how is this like Jesus? I really loved uh, uh, a while ago when we were looking through... uh, King David's life and we found this uh, lady called Abigail and she was obviously Jesus to David and it's kind of like this obscure story that doesn't get mentioned but you can see Abigail it's just obviously Jesus to King David and it should help us read the Old Testament when we are bogged down by the words and cubits and the weird measurements they use, and the bizarre laws they have uh, uh, for ceremonial cleanliness. I want you to hear the words grace, and I want you to hear the words Jesus. And if he doesn't immediately pop out, keep going until you find him. Because he's there, and Peter says he's there. And he made sure that Mark put that Old Testament prophet right at the beginning of Mark, because it's all about Jesus. And so we should learn to appreciate the Old Testament and devour it a bit more with a confidence, not that we need to know Hebrew or Aramaic or uh, Iron Age burial customs, but that Jesus is the answer to each and every bit. And the second thing I want you to take from this observation is that God's plan of salvation is epic. It really is epic. If Jesus fills the Old Testament, that means this plan of salvation wasn't God going, oh, I better bring in plan B. Jesus isn't, oh, you know what, they've failed again. Let's, like, let's do what we have to. Let's pull out the emergency plan. Jesus is the deliberate, purposeful, purposeful millennia-long plan of salvation that God always wanted to bring in. And you are recipients of that. You and I are recipients of this millennial old story that uh, we are benefactors of. And that should bless you. You are the answer to a story that's been going on for thousands of years. And you should be reassured and buoyed up. And suddenly all your doubts and concerns and worries are put into perspective by the fact that this story's been going on for thousands of years and you are another person to be caught up in its swell. Now this may only be me, but have you ever had a delivery that you've really expected and it seems to be delayed? I am guilty, especially... Um, if it's um, something, perhaps uh, a new camera or something, and it hasn't arrived when I've sort of been at work, then I come home 
and especially over the weekend, I'm sort of looking out the window, and I kind of know, so our postman comes around 10 o'clock on a Saturday, and you have a look, and you kind of see in, anticipating his walk, is he going to walk past my house, or does he look like he's coming into it, and what has he got in his hands, is there a parcel there, or is it just like council tax bills, or is it just sort of, uh, um, you know, sort of free pizza that... Um, is, is just not what I want at all. And then there's also, you don't know how it's being delivered, and perhaps you don't know whether it's raw or male or not. So any uh, UPS van uh, uh, or any of the other uh, delivery guys, they pull in, and we've got a bit of a close, so basically it could be any up to sort of 20-odd houses, and the white van pulls in, and you go, is he going to come? And he gets out, and he's, does he live here, or has he got a parcel? And then he goes to the back, and he pulls out a parcel, and you're like, is he coming to me, or is he going to the one? And I've got this uh, friend of the other cross that seems to order more stuff than the whole close together, and it's always to him, rather, to me. But there is that eagerness and expectation that I have occasionally that the delivery guy will come to me and so often uh, I get frustrated. Peter wants you to know this morning that all the scholars, prophets, leaders, writers, patriarchs and poets of ancient Israel, all the characters that you find in the Old Testament, they poured over their own words and the words of those before him with painstaking attention they were looking they were searching they were standing at the window trying to guess when the delivery was to come they knew God's plan of salvation was coming they knew God was going to do something to save them and they longed to know with every fiber of their being when and how that would be. They long to know, what does God's plan of salvation look like? How's it going to arrive? How big is it? Do I get to be involved in that story? And there's that wonderful bit, isn't there, in the infancy narratives, when sort of they take Jesus to um, the temple, and um, is it Anna? And she just goes, oh, I'm really grateful that I've seen God's plan of salvation come out. You know what, I, I can die now, I, I've seen it. And, and that attitude is just filling the Old Testament, Peter says. All these guys, all this stuff they've written about, sort of Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, they all wanted to know, when is this plan of salvation going to come about? Every single one of them, from Moses to Malachi, was frustrated. They were Kevin at 10.30 when the Royal Mail guy had passed him by with not a parcel. However, you and I know what Moses longed to see. You and I know what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob longed to see. We know that this plan of salvation involved God sending his only son to live as a man, to die a terrible death, for that death to atone for our sins, for him to raise, rise again, to go to the right hand of the Father and send the Holy Spirit. That is what all these Old Testament prophets and writers and poets longed to see. Jesus says this 
in Matthew 11, 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than the John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus is saying, all those that come in the wake of Jesus' salvation know far more than all those Old Testament prophets. We know this picture of salvation. We don't just have a vague trust that God will save us. We know that when we trust in Jesus, we have a salvation that it's, uh, that's going to see us through. I don't know whether you take it for granted. I don't know whether uh, you've grown cold over it. I don't know whether you've grown blasé over it. But I want you to hear that all those characters in the Old Testament would have loved to have been in your position. They would have loved to know the story of salvation that is in your hands in Scripture, that is in your hearts by faith. Moses, perhaps, would have traded it all just to listen to that story one time, that sweet story of redemption that you and I too easily take for granted. And I want their envy to encourage you. I want their uh, frustratedness to cause you to go, oh, this is actually really precious, what I have. This is actually very valuable. This is actually something that I need to hold on to and cultivate and care for. Moses encountered the face of God and his face kind of glowed with the radiance of God's glory. But he knew less than you do. You know the details. You know the specifics. You know the figures that Moses had no idea about. And you see the handiwork of God in a way that all those patriarchs never got to. We are in the most privileged end of history. The most privileged end of history. And it is worth a moment of your time to think and revel and enjoy and appreciate. Anyway, Peter goes on to develop his point further. He says, the prophets didn't write for themselves. And you're like, what? The prophets didn't write for themselves. Well, Moses kind of wrote for uh, revelation of God came to him and he wrote the sort of the... uh, the, the Pentateuch and uh, the revelation of God came on the other guys and they wrote it down and surely that sort of encouraged and it was for their time and preachers are always going about what you don't understand about sort of ancient Judah is the goat and that you really need to hear about the goat. Well, Peter says he didn't write for themselves. Peter says these Old Testament writers, they recorded information that would be of help to you. Some of you are like, well, they can keep their help. I've read some of that Old Testament, and you know what? Just uh, put it to one side. But Peter says, they wrote it down for your help. They wrote it down to serve you. All that stuff from sort of Genesis to Malachi, it's all supposed to be helpful to you. You're supposed to look at it and go, oh, I see. Because it is all full of Jesus. And they didn't know who Jesus was. But they wrote it down to help you, to move you along. 
these inspired authors wrote stuff down. So when Jesus finally come, all the Christians would go, oh, I see. Oh, that's what it's all about. Suddenly all these cryptic comments of Isaiah and David and Daniel, all these other guys, suddenly it would all come together and go, oh, it all draws it together. Isn't that magical? Isn't that mysterious? Isn't that uh, affirming? It was to serve you and I. Turn to Romans chapter 15. It's incredible how often uh, Paul and Peter sort of mention the same thing. So it says this in Romans chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, and we should not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Everyone say everything. everything. And then everyone say me. me. Everything that was written was to help you, to teach you. So that through the endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Jesus Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul here repeats the Apostle Peter's assertion that the Old Testament serves us today. They serve us. They give us something. Those great prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, they work hard to listen and speak what they've heard from God so that people they never met would flourish. Brian and Tim and Don. Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel wrote down their words so you could be encouraged. They would never know you. They would never know your language. They would never know your customs or your high and low. But what they wrote down, they served you with. Friends, if you're struggling, the scriptures are all at your disposal to help you. They are to teach you and to encourage you. It takes a bit of work. You have to learn a language to read them. You have to learn to read And then you have to learn to sort of go through and pick up the story. But they're there to help you. If you're struggling, Peter says, well, read scripture. That's what it's there for. Read scripture. It's supposed to be helpful. You're suffering from some malady or other. Read scripture. See what it says about Jesus. See what it says about your position before Jesus. Scripture is full of teaching about endurance and encouragement. It's teachings, it's stories, it's promises. It's all there for your help. Jesus didn't just say, look to Christians for help. He didn't just say, pray really hard for help. He said, 
Look at scripture. It is there to serve you. If you are not doing well, have a look at scripture. Now, if God would use Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel for our benefit, I think it changes how we see service in our own lives. God can use our struggles, our peaks and troughs, our victories for people that we've got no idea about. We've got no idea of the ripples our lives make uh, in the uh, lives of other people. I'm really grateful we had some people come up at the 11am slot. It was an opportunity to serve. You say something out loud and you kind of feel a bit stupid and um, you say things that you think God is saying and you may not hear anything at all. But God seems to have this mechanism in place where you follow him and he uses what you get up to to bless other people. And you may know nothing about it. And you should be encouraged by this. That sometimes your struggles and victories and peaks and troughs are a blessing to other people when they catch hold of it. I wonder if you can live your life without a thank you. I wonder if you can live your life without people saying how amazing you are. I wonder if you can live, like Jeremiah's got to be one of my, my favourite Old Testament, because basically he just gets the worst life possible and then he dies. Um, and he's called like the weeping prophet. And uh, his, so one book's got his name and the other book's called Lamentations. And you're like, well, that guy's lived a great life, hasn't he? But he, he lived his life in the face of God. And his life has blessed countless generations afterwards. And I just want you to hear that you may struggle. You may go through all sorts of internal fights You may never hear anyone go, wow, I'm really glad you said that, spoke it out loud because it blessed me and helped me. But God does use those things to touch other people's lives. And so when you go through these things, when you share them, I want you to know that it's part of God's plan to use you to bless others and you may not hear anything about it, but it is there nevertheless and you are part of this rich fabric um, that uh, is interwound. Someone at football uh, was asking me what church would be about this morning. Well, I said angels. Um, And he got really excited because he wanted to know all about angels. But we're not really going to go into the the sort of uh, the um, sort of the exact details of them. But it seems that at the beginning, before maybe physical creation, God made spiritual beings, beings without sort of material substance. Now, they're never the focus of Scripture. Angels are never something to zero in on and make a big deal about. Christianity um, is almost, uh, it's got a history of making every error possible, and one of them has been to focus 
too much attention on angels. But they're there nonetheless. They're all through scripture, these mysterious spiritual beings that are used by God to send, uh, sort of send messages. And there, uh, Abraham, uh, entertains them and, uh, sort of the birth of Jesus is announced by angels and they're surprising and they're mysterious and they're strategic and they don't have wings. They just appear as people. They suddenly appear and then disappear. But they are spiritual beings. And you've got to be careful the language you use because there's lots of things we don't know about them. We're kind of, there's tiny little bits here and there. Um, I couldn't find my copy of the Screwtape Letters this morning, but at the beginning of uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, yeah, he talks about uh, a fascination with demons and devils. And he says uh, uh, there are two errors to fall into. Either we think about them too much or we think about them too little. And I think probably angels fall into that camp. Either you get too preoccupied with them or you become completely oblivious to them. And, and both of them is an error to, to fall into. And uh, Peter is quite happy to just throw in angels in his middle bit uh, um, of the passage that we're, we're looking at. It just refers to them in passing. Oh, angels. Not only do we know more about God's plan of salvation than Moses and all the patriarchs and all the prophets, not only do they serve us, but these mysterious spiritual messengers of God have got a holy curiosity about your cherished gospel. They look at you and they wonder. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I've got a great quote to finish with in a sec, but I just want to read something from Hebrews. It says this in, uh, in verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. And the writer of the Hebrews is talking about Jesus taking on flesh and bone. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy of the same family. We are the family of God. And uh, I love that. They little snippets you just enjoy. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am. And the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. I don't know whether we'll ever really grasp the immensity of God taking on flesh. It is quite an incredible thing. Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels it helps. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Can you hear that contrast? These beautiful spiritual beings who cause awe in everyone that's, that encounters them. And the writer of the Hebrew says, it's not angels he helps. 
Um, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so the writer of the Hebrews tells us that Jesus can relate to you and I in a way that... Uh, is just special because he had flesh and bone. He had hunger. He had aches and pains. He had exhaustion. He had thirst. God did something absolutely incredible. He took on flesh and he saved us. No other creature in all God's creation can say that God took on their flesh and saved them. We are uniquely honoured. C.S. Lewis, who is a little bit often out there, um, he talks about what happens if we find alien life forms. Well, I can tell you, whatever alien life forms we may encounter, none of them will have the privilege that we've had of God taking on their flesh. I may have lost some of you there, but I just find it a fascinating thought. It is little wonder... That these spiritual beings, these angels who are in the presence of God, who know what he's like, they look upon you and I. We are sweaty, we are messy, we break easily, we are rebellious, we uh, get hungry and irritable and ratty and we behave badly. And yet God has singled us out to take on our flesh and bone to save us. And the angels are looking on and they're going, what? God takes on them? He didn't help the angels, but he helps humanity, you and I. We are peculiarly favoured in all of creation. There's this wonderful quote uh, in here I really like. So this is uh, Wayne Grudem, and he says this. Though the world may think Christians insignificant and worthy of pity and scorn. I don't know if you've ever felt that in today's society. Christians are worthy of pity and scorn, you ignoramuses who believe this fantastic story from 2,000 years ago that's obviously untrue and has been disproved a thousand times. And so that's what the world thinks. And then uh, Wayne Gruden says this, he says, Angels who see ultimate reality from God's perspective find them to be objects of intense interest. For they know that these struggling believers are actually the recipients of God's greatest blessings and honoured participants in a great drama at the focal point of universal history. We too might rightly think of our Christian lives as no less privileged and no less interesting to holy angels than the lives of Peter's readers. Angels look at you and go, you're incredible. You have received something that has been reserved for no other creature in God's universe. And they look at you fascinated and they wonder and they long To know what you do about salvation because they don't know what you know. They haven't been redeemed like you have. We have an incredibly special privilege. 
On a daily basis, we may feel bullied, belittled and helpless. But God's angels know that there's a bigger truth. Our stories, our battles, our dramas are part of a much larger perspective where we are uniquely blessed. As we live our lives, I want us to perhaps remember some of those points. Uh, Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that he died so that we might know you and be in a relationship with you as uh, sons and daughters. Lord God, I pray that we would be good at valuing and appreciating and nurturing this truth. Lord God, I pray um, that we would remind ourselves that angels long to look into what we well know and that that changes everything. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.